Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 13th, 2013, and my guest today is Bruce Schneier. He is widely recognized as an authority on security of all kinds, from internet security to anti-terrorism. He's the author of numerous books. His latest is Liars and Outliers. And our topic for today is the relationship between power and the internet, power and technology. Though I'm sure we'll stray into some other topics as well. Bruce, welcome to Econ Talk. Uh, thanks for having me. A lot of people argue that the internet has empowered the powerless, and there's a lot of evidence for that. But you accept the point and add, well, it's also empowered the powerful. How has that um, how has that happened? Explain. Well, it's interesting. When we first got the internet, it was very quickly clear that the the powerless, that the unorganized, that the disenfranchised were able to use it to uh, to organize, to gain power. And we saw this from the banal to the uh, to the important. We saw it in Wikipedia. We saw it in internet chat rooms or, or web pages, and, and for every activity or interest or or uh, proclivity that you could quickly find people like you and organize. And this also worked for political movements. We saw President Obama use the internet uh, in an unprecedented way. We saw the Arab Spring, where in countries like Egypt and uh, Libya, dissidents use the internet to organize and to uh, push for political change. And and that that worked. You know, you, you saw a lot of writings in in the 1990s that talked about this. I remember uh, 1996, uh, John Barlow wrote this great document, the uh, Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. And he said something like, to governments, you, know, you can't rule the internet because you have no ability to control it. You know, it was a utopian dream, and we kind of all believed it. What we didn't realize is that more broadly, the internet technology magnifies power. And then if you have power already, It'll also magnify your power, but it happens slower. Right? Governments are institutions. They don't move as fast. They have bureaucracies. They have ways of doing things. And it really took them maybe 10, 15 years to figure out the internet. But now we're living in a world where the powerful use the internet to increase their power. So the NSA use the internet to spy on people. The Chinese government uses the internet to spy on people. The Libyan government uses the internet. Uh, large businesses are using the internet to increase their power. And it's not just Google and Facebook. It's, it's things like uh, big media and the movie industry that's using it to uh, crack down on file sharing. So we're seeing a broad increase in the people and institutions using the internet to increase their power. And it's sort of an open question of where this balance will end up between the powerful and the powerless, which one will benefit more and who will end up with the upper hand. I mean, we know about from history, different technologies will perturb things. We're not sure what will happen in this case. 
So in a recent podcast we did with William Bernstein, uh, he gave an example of the radio, which is a fascinating example how the radio was originally used by tyrants uh, to spread propaganda uh, by the oppressor to uh, keep the oppressed oppressed. But eventually the oppressed were able to use that technology to liberate themselves by being able, in the case of the Soviet Union, to listen to you know radio for Europe, to get information and other te- and other broadcasting information about the world that they didn't otherwise have, and certainly one of the most important parts of the internet is to allow me as a as a citizen to get at information about what's actually going on, just just some measure of the truth. And of course, in totalitarian governments, control of that information is extremely important. So on the surface, you'd think the the internet's made it much harder for tyrants to uh, control that flow of information. The only thing that worries me sometimes is that the internet would get cut off or, or highly censored by the, the powerful and, and keep me from that flow of information. Is that something uh, I should worry about either in the United States or elsewhere? I mean, it certainly is. And, and it's not just governments. I would worry about uh, companies doing it as well. You know, it's interesting. If you think about internet and control, there are several levels of control you can have. Uh, the best level is uh, fine grained control, where you can selectively censor, selectively monitor, add and delete messages. Uh, if you can't do that, the next best thing you can do is to eavesdrop. You just passively eavesdrop on everything. And if you can't do that, then the next best thing is is to destroy it, to uh, shut it down. And we'll see governments doing all those things depending on their technical capability. Uh, I worry about not just government censorship, which, which is obvious to see. You see it in China. Right? The, the Chinese do a lot of censorship. And there's censorship projects which monitor countries and censorship. And you're seeing more of it every year. I happened to be in, the, in Saudi Arabia last week, and the internet was heavily censored. I couldn't get to either porn sites or the Jerusalem Post. And you know more countries are doing that. Also, you have to worry about let's not really censoring but message control from companies like Google. You know, we know that your Google search results are dependent in part on your personal Google history. The kind of things you see depend on what you've asked for and looked for in the past. So your internet is in some ways censored, not with a political agenda, but with some agenda that you don't understand. Uh, I saw a paper published a couple of weeks ago that looked at the possibility of Google tipping a presidential election. And this was a psychological study. It was sort of interesting. They, we know that uh, people's impressions depend on their past experiences. So the question was, can you modify someone's impression of a political candidate based on the sorts of articles you show him? And the answer was, of course, oh, yes. Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> of course you can. Yeah. And so – so you can have a situation where Google or a company in that position could decide for whatever reason to show more positive articles about candidate B, more negative articles about candidate A, uh, given where we live in the United States in a country with a very slim margin between the two parties. It doesn't take a lot to shift a small number of people and therefore the election. Now, what the article said is not that Google would do this, but that they could do it, and which I think is interesting, that it wouldn't even be illegal. It'd be a perfectly 
legal thing for them to do. This is a corporation providing a free service. They can do it however they want. There's nothing to say that they have to only show balanced articles or a balance of articles for any political candidate. So Google could tip an election. Hello, what for the article some- asked, which is, a, which is a very different question, is does that mean that search should be regulated or, and made more transparent in our country that it's just too important to be opaque and a trade secret? Or some people like would like it that way. They'd like to get biased results, which is why they visit certain websites that Google would have well, noticed. But, but, but they want biased results in the bias they want. Of course. Right? You know, so this would right? be this different. is an example of uh, right bias results in some hidden bias you don't know what it is. Yeah, it sounds like which, a, sounds like a good plot you know, of a movie. It is, but and you can see the same thing in advertising. I mean, what happens if I'm I'm just making this so Coke pays Google some amount of money to show better articles about Coke and worse articles about Pepsi. Perfectly reasonable business model. One we don't believe Google is engaging in right now, but they certainly could. And here it wouldn't tip an election. It would tip a market. But Bruce, we know we don't have to worry because Google's motto is don't be evil. So there's nothing to worry about. Uh, now, that is very interesting. And I think, I think obviously, as you said, this is legal right now. A search engine's I'll call proclivities or, or it's their proprietary algorithm. Now, if that if that came out, I think it would be devastating to Google. It might not may make it hard for it to come out. They can maybe cover it up. Um, but I think what right now regulates that behavior is the is the impression we have, which may not be true. That if they no. did that, it would be very costly. Right, but but, but we, we know that as regulation goes, that's pretty crappy. I mean, we've learned. I mean, we know that again and again. Most recently, in the 2008 financial crisis. That if this ever gets out, we'll be in trouble is a really, really bad regulatory regime and not one that's going to work. I'm not so sure. Resembling reasonable. I'm not so sure. Uh, that's it. That'd be another topic. I think it, it actually works quite well most of the time. Uh, I know. We, the problem is works quite well most of the time is actually very bad since you have such major things. But anyway, it, but it I, is I another think, topic. I, right. I think the reason it fails has to do with other um, other forces, not the, the basic idea. I think the basic idea is that – your brand name and your reputation, I think, are quite powerful and important self-regulatory mechanisms. They're limited. I'll, I'll agree with that. Right, but, but, but remember, the, the, you know, the, the whole corporations are people thing. You can't. You forget they're actually not people. It's not no. a corporation saying, you know, my brand Coke is important. It's a guy saying, I'll get a bonus in eight months if I do this thing. And when the when everything just completely explodes, you know, it'll be someone else's problem. You know, so. You know the, the the incentives get very skewed when you have this weird corporations or people kind of kind of feeling. Yeah, I'm not. So sure. it's individuals sure. making decisions, and, and that affect larger entities. Agreed. And the corporations that usually have an incentive to monitor that misbehavior. I would argue in the financial sector, we took out the natural forces that would give them that incentive, and they didn't monitor it. And people, there were a lot of rogue activity, a lot of rogue rogue activity that, and rogue. Uh, decisions that were made by individuals that were very destructive, but I, I, my my argument is that we've destroyed the natural feedback loops that would have encouraged that to stop. Just to take an obvious example, if you were spending your own money, which they are usually are not, uh, they would have acted very differently. And the reason they were able to spend other people's money is partly because I think a failure of the of a different part of the regulatory yeah, it, regime. It, it depends. It depends who the they is, and the they is someone in a corporation getting a salary. So he's never spending his own money. He's spending the money of his employer. 
Right? There's no such thing as as the corporation spending its own money because it can't do that. The the verb spending only applies to human beings. Well, that's true. Right? A, a, a building can't spend. People in a building can spend. And I think that's that's the the the, the confusion that that people just com- just miss. I think. A lot because it's a convenient shorthand to say That's General right. Motors did this as if General Motors could do something. Well, so. that's correct. It, it's a shorthand that's often misleading or um, uh, uninformative. And the example that I like, I'm sure one of us will use it at least once during this podcast, is the word we to describe something done by the government or the United States, which is the same problem. Um I want to I want to go to a different issue that you just touched on though a minute ago, which is eavesdropping. Uh, and you talked about how the powerful can they'd like to manipulate individual fine grain messages, fine grain manipulation like editing messages, throwing them out, et cetera. Uh, the the next best is eavesdropping. How much eavesdropping is do you know of that's going on in the United States right now? Well, a lot of this is secret, so we don't know. Uh, we do know that uh, Google eavesdrops on pretty much everything you do. Facebook eavesdrops on everything you do. Uh, if you're uh, browsing the web, you know, there, are t- there are tools you can use, and there's uh, one tool called Collusion. So reading some report, I think from New Yorker, was, was monitoring a tool, and he found there were 130 companies were eavesdropping on him as he wandered the internet. So there's an enormous amount of eavesdropping built into the business model of the internet. So that's sort of one half of it. Second half of it is government eavesdropping. Uh, and really, we don't know. There's a belief that the NSA is eavesdropping on as much as they can. Uh, by law, they're prohibited from eavesdropping on Americans. All that has gotten very fuzzy, and we're not really sure what they're doing. Uh, they're building a large data center in Utah, which seems to be to collect basically what people are doing on the internet so they can search it uh, in real time or search it backwards in time. Exactly what they're collecting, we don't know. Exactly how they're collecting, we don't know. Uh, you know, the NSA eavesdropping on phone calls, right? That was a big scandal a few years ago. Other countries openly say they do it, right? China is no secret. They internet, eavesdrop on the internet. Uh, and the disturbing thing is a lot of the tools go back and forth. So tools that are built in the United States to facilitate corporate eavesdropping. So, for example, you might work for a large corporation and they don't want trade secrets leaving their network, so they put in something called data loss prevention, which is basically eavesdropping on what people are sending out of, out of their, their particular accounts to make sure no corporate secrets are being leaked. That same technology can be sold to countries like Egypt to do the same thing, to eavesdrop more generally. And there is this back and forth between uh, government power and corporate power, and the same tools are doing both. Because exactly what happens in the United States, we know that you're being eavesdropped all the time by corporations, and government does get access to that data, uh, either through warrants or through agreements. Sometimes they ask nicely, and again, we don't have a lot of solid information about this, and also direct government eavesdropping. So in the uh, Boston Marathon bombing, the uh, a set of surveillance technology was used to apprehend the, the bombers or to identify the bombers, the alleged bombers. Uh, and some of that, I assume, was private. It was private in the sense that it was 
crowdsourced. It was photos and videos that people at the time took. There were also surveillance cameras that were from local companies. Lord and Taylor right. and, supposedly and, and, had a – And they willingly gave it to the government. It's pretty reasonable here. Use this. See if you can find yeah. anything. And then, of course, the government also has its own surveillance cameras uh, in certain places. I don't know if they were on that in that spot, but I know that – I think I'm right that, that in certain spots in the United States, there's, there's government surveillance cameras. And these give me the creeps um, personally, but a lot of which, Americans – Which ones? Well, both, I oh, hope. Well, mostly – again, mostly the government one because – Again, it's it's much harder for me to opt out of government mistakes than private mistakes. Actually, it's not true. I mean, God, you. I mean, you cannot opt. So let's go back to Boston. Well, sorry, I miss. Let me let me choose right. a different. I mean, let me choose a different I mean, vocabulary. <laughs> if I don't like Lord and if Lord and Taylor took, uh, say, embarrassing, took ugly photographs, meaning photographs of people and making awkward faces, embarrassing clothing, whatever it was, and put them on the internet for entertainment. Uh, People would get upset, and and some people would stop shopping at, at Lord and Taylor. It's a lot harder for me to leave the United States. That's all I meant by opt out. I apologize. Yeah, it was a, a I, yeah I don't language. know. I mean, the, the, I, I guess this is. I, I really dislike the. You know, if the government does it, it's bad. But if the corporation does it, it magically becomes good. Honestly, I didn't if, say that. If, <laughs> yeah, but if, if a company decided to post embarrassing photos of people, I mean, I'm going to make this up. Lord and Taylor hires guys to walk around Boston yeah, with cameras taking and, yeah. embarrassing photos. Sure, it's against... And, and some people won't shop there. Some people will shop there twice. Well, maybe. Uh, right? So, but, but the people who have, are having embarrassing photos taken have no say in this. And you can't opt out. It's, it's just as hard. Well, I think there's... Because, I don't have any problem with regulations or laws that, that uh, legislation that prevents people from... Uh, Using my picture or my work or other aspects to, to humiliate me or embarrass me or, or invade my privacy. So I, I, I don't disagree with you there. What, what I disagree with is the use uh, – let's take a different word. Let's take censorship. So if, if you write – if somebody's listening to this right now and they want to write an angry, um, uh, obscene and, and rude comment on this Econ Talk podcast, we censor those. Uh, I don't use, like that word I don't, and I won't use that word. We moderate and edit the comments to this podcast. And some yeah, people call I it, do the same. I do the same thing in my blog. And people you call have, it, I mean, right, right, right. You must maintain a civil tone. Yeah, you can disagree, exactly. but just don't be a jerk about it. Correct. And people will often accuse us of being of censorship. And I want to reserve that word for the use of the power of the state, which is has the, a monopoly on coercive power. It can arrest me, can put me in jail. I want to reserve that word to mean the control of information by the central authority. Now, I'm not going to disagree with you that sometimes eavesdropping, private or public, or whatever, let's call it corporate or government, can, can be bad on both cases, but I don't think they're the same. Okay. I mean, I, you know, this, this, I don't know, this gets into, yeah, I mean, there's probably a different argument that I'm not really equipped to have right now, but I mean, they're, they're closer than I think a lot of people think, you know. And I think this is the, uh, I mean, this is the great libertarian fallacy that it was a really good idea back in the mid 1700s that power is dangerous and that we should look towards a society that equalizes power. But what I think the philosophy missed over the past few hundred years is that power has shifted. That is not just government power. That corporate power, in some ways, is a lot more powerful than government. 
I was reading this great book. On, it's called Power Inc., which talked about the rise of core power. And one of the points the person made, the author makes, is that you know, imagine a, a climate change legislation. Who do you think has more power? Uh, Bolivia or Exxon? Right? It's not even close. Who has more power, the United States or Exxon? Well, it actually is close, and we're not sure. You know, the, the, with the nexus of power on our planet has shifted, and if we care about liberty, we can't ignore that. And and it's it is actually, I think, I think just as hard in some cases to leave Facebook as it is to leave the city you live in because you don't like the government. Yeah, I want to come back you know, to it, that. It is so. Yeah. It, these technologies are so pervasive and so. And so embedded, you know, try living without a credit card. That's really, really, really hard. And unless credit cards compete yep. on whatever feature, you know, we're complaining about, it, it's it's basically we have no choice. And and this is, I to me, the interesting thing about power and security. How how we find those in power, whether it's government power or corporate power, are using security, using the internet to solidify and increase power. And a lot of my main worries are, are when the two get together. Because, oh, we, we agree on that. That's, that's. You know, I mean, if you think about it, there are two types of law in our society. There's constitutional law that constrains government, and there's, well, I don't know what to call it, regulatory law, tort law that constrains corporations. And what we're seeing is that both groups have learned to bypass their limitations by using the other's law. And I think that's very dangerous. So the government is using corporations to get information it can't get otherwise. To get around limitations on what government can do, you know, really important limitations, they're going to corporations and getting help. Corporations who are prohibited from doing certain things are going to government and getting help. So the movie industry tries to get government to pass a law to enforce its business model. I mean, something that that seems like an absolute disaster. But so, you know, it's this back and forth that and that really worries me. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you and I think the main reason that Exxon is more powerful than Bolivia is because they've figured out a way to use the political power of the US government. Right, they've hacked it. Their economic power is very limited because I don't have to shop there and that's the the part of competition. I, there's a lot more to economic power than you having to shop there. I mean, the the extra the externalities are enormous. Well, let's get to and those. Whether or not you shop there, they actually couldn't care less whether or not you shop there. It's not going to matter to their power, and it's much bigger than a country. Well, I mean, if the, nobody the, buys the, Exxon gasoline, they're not going to have a lot of power. Yeah, but most people don't care, and, okay, that's and the they issue. know that. Okay, well, let's get to that. The question is, why don't they care? The, I brought up the eavesdropping and the surveillance because I wanted to – and I brought up the Boston bomber. We got off on a digression there. But the reason I brought it up is that I, I talked about the different kinds of surveillance that took place that allowed the government to identify the alleged bombers. We had people taking cell phone photos and regular photos, and we had surveillance cameras from Lord and & Taylor and other shoppers. And we could have had – I don't know if we had in this actual case. We could have had government surveillance cameras, and I mentioned that they – Bothered me. You said I should be bothered by all of them, perhaps. But the point I want to make is that most people aren't bothered by any of them. And in particular, 
this kind of case where the case was cracked, possibly, we don't know if these people, they seem to be the, we don't know, they're the alleged bombers, but the suspects were identified very quickly, uh, is going to encourage a lot of people, not me, but a lot of people to say, this is great. We have to have more of this. We have to have more surveillance because we want to make sure that people don't get away with things like this. And so I wanted you to talk about the role of the average person's lack of concern, which is what you're alluding to in this last comment, in uh, facilitating this kind of increase in surveillance and eavesdropping. Oh, I mean, let's, let's take, take the more general question first. I mean, yes, there's a lot of lack of concern. And the basic reason is diffuse versus concentrated interests. When you, me, anybody go about their day, we have a million and a half things we have to worry about. And uh, Facebook eavesdropping and government surveillance cameras and, you know, all of those things are, are piled up with a have to, you know, drop something off at the post office and go grocery shopping. And it's very hard to get riled up about any one particular issue because we've got so much to do. Meanwhile, on the other hand, the U.S. military, Google, Microsoft – they all have lobbyists, right? They all have people whose dedicated job is making sure their interests are being pushed. And it is extremely hard for that to to deal with that balance, with that, that imbalance. So you have police that say, we love cameras. We get to sit in our Police stations, you don't go outside where it's cold, the cameras do all the watching, and look at all this cool high tech. Uh, you have a camera industry that pushes all of this, that pushes cameras uh, in schools. Here are some free cameras. Let's get people used to it. Uh, here are some great camera success stories. It, so there's money in cameras, there's power in them, and that's hard to array against the general populace that's just busy with a hundred other things. Now, you know, if you totaled up, I think, the, uh, the anti-camera sentiment, it would be greater than the pro-camera forces, but it's just so diffuse, you never get a chance to total it up. And, and I think other, that's fundamentally a problem. Isn't the other factor I, – I, I, it's a great point about the you – know, I've got a million things to do and they're kind of focused. I think that's a, a general problem in – Legislation and everything, and, right? And how, it gets, everything. how it gets steered toward certain interests, um, right? But isn't a, a lot of it also that most people don't even see it as a negative? It's not that they're not aware of it. They, they see it as, you know, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I have nothing to hide. What's the big deal? The government's going to find the bad guys, and I'm one of the good guys, so I shouldn't worry. I mean, I think that's most people's attitude. Well, I think there's a lot of that. I mean, there's a few things going on. The first is fear. When someone is yep. actually afraid. They'll do pretty much anything not to be afraid anymore. And if they are told, terrorist, 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 fear, 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 I know will save you cameras, they'll say, oh, great, save me. Right? Read my mail, put cameras in, you know, make sure that there's no uh, spectators at any marathon between now and the end of time. Whatever dumb thing you're going to do, you know, just do it and make me feel safe. And you know, because that message is being pushed, and it's a propaganda message, you know, by government, by police, by the vendors of of whatever technology is being sold, yeah. right? I mean, and people people not knowing better will believe because it sounds plausible. 
right? Cameras caught the bad guy, therefore cameras are good. And, and we could argue whether cameras did catch the bad guy, and it's not obvious to me that they did, or at least that the bad guys wouldn't have been caught otherwise. Right? Did, did cameras happen to catch the bad guy, or were cameras necessary to catch the bad guy? And necessary is the, is the important question, but this is a subtlety that's going to be lost in, a, in an average conversation. So the first thing is fear. The second thing is privacy, like any right – you tend to only notice it when it's gone. That's right. It's, e- it's easy to say, right, I have nothing to hide. Although when, you know, I'm asked that pretty regularly on the radio. And when someone says, I have nothing to hide, what do I care? I'll say on the radio, what's your salary? <laughs> and they'll say, um, 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 and I'll yeah. say, see, right? Have it, you know, something That's an to easy hide. easy one too, yeah. <laughs> because something to hide isn't about illegal activity. Isn't, it isn't about something I'm ashamed of. It's about how you present yourself to the world. And you know, it's not about secrecy versus non-secrecy. I will go to a doctor and take off my clothes, but it doesn't mean I'll do that in, on, you Facebook, know, yeah. on Facebook. Some and it's will. not because I have something to hide. It's because it's a different context. And our, our, our notions of privacy are very complex and there's also, I think, a, a belief, and this again, you don't notice until it's gone, that the powers are largely benevolent. Yeah, that, you know, of course, you don't yeah. care if the police know, reads your email, because what do they care? And it's only in those scary regimes of you know, the middle of the previous century where the police state – did those nasty things, except that is not true. It's true today in certain countries. And you know, you and I know that when you give power, and this is actually true for government or corporate power, when you give power to an entity, uh, the, uh, you will have abuses, and the more power, the more abuses, and the more potential for abuses. And this is why you, know, you, you, you always temper power. Well. That is also a very subtle argument. So, I mean, I think the basic reasons are, 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 are multiple, that when people are scared, they're willing to not be scared, that the, the privacy arguments are subtle and hard to understand, and the, pri- the negatives from lack of privacy, you only notice when you're missing them. So that's the real combination that makes this a difficult conversation. Yeah, and then I think you get to a – you get to a – you're on a slippery slope potentially, and I think that's the – right now we're in the middle of a – I don't know how serious the scandal is going to turn out to be, but there's now some evidence that the IRS may have used political considerations uh, in uh, investigating uh, various uh, not, uh, tax exempt organizations and maybe been biased. And we've heard that. I mean, and those accusations are. I mean, how old are they in our country? A century more? Right. Sure. Right. You know. I mean, every time. And and and. I mean, power is tempting, right? You know, you're sitting there. You're in power. You have this lever. It's going to be really hard to say, you know, that would be wrong because you're skewed. You know, you're doing it for what you believe is some greater good. I mean, this is the same reason we, 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 we're torturing people. You know, we, we were blind to that it was a really, really, really bad idea. So let's talk about this corporate issue, and you, you put it in a very interesting way in a recent essay. You talked about feudalism. And again, I think that might be a little overdramatic, but you, you're, why don't you describe what you mean by that and, and it flesh out some of the points you're making earlier about how we depend on Facebook, Google, Amazon, et cetera. 
Well, I mean, it's this is sort of an effect of the way technology is moving, right? We're moving towards less control of our stuff. We're putting more things in the cloud. And this really has to do with the cost of data storage versus the cost of data transport versus the ease of access. That it turns out to be easier for most people to put their email on some cloud provider, let's say Gmail or Hotmail, to put their photos on Flickr or, or some other photo app. Dropbox. Dropbox, uh, Google Docs, uh, a dress book uh, somewhere, you know, a calendar somewhere. This is just a lot easier. At and the it's, same it's time, fabulous. To, oh, it is it's, absolutely it's fabulous. fabulous. I mean, I mean all, right, all these things are being done for really, really good reasons. Yeah. At the same time, we're losing more control over our, our consumer devices. So if you have an iPhone, you have a lot less control than you had over a Windows box. For an iPhone, all software must be approved by Apple. It's only sold out of the Apple Store. Uh, updates are approved. If you have a Kindle, you don't even have a choice whether you can uh, load an update. It happens automatically. And so, and basically, my observation is that people, and I see this in my friends, right? people pledge allegiance to a particular company. So I have a friend who has a Google phone. And she has her calendar on Google and her email on Google and her address book. And it's all fantastic. It works great. But she, she is a, essentially outsourced She's ever a vassal. vassal of Google. <laughs> now, saying other people can do the same thing to Apple. Uh, Microsoft is, is trying to get into that position to be able to be the one-stop shop for all of your stuff. And – at those points, we are vassals is, is probably a good word or serfs depending on you know, where you want to take the metaphor uh, of, of these companies. And the reason I call it feudalism is because those companies don't necessarily have your best interests in heart. Right? You know, you, you, in a lot of cases, you're not even their customers. Right? They are offering you this service because – you're, they want you as part of their product. They're selling they you. sell to their customers, mm-hmm. right? So they're enticing you into their into their system to give them all of this data and information that they could basically sell behind your back without your knowledge or consent. I mean, in, in theory, you know, but you know, you ask most people, no one's going to read the agreement they they claim Never. they're supposed to agree to, right? Never. I mean, and a lot of people don't actually know. And you know, when I look at feudalism. It's a really interesting argument. I'm not sure I buy, but I'm going to, I'm going to present it because I think it's really interesting. Uh, I was reading a book, uh, Rebecca McKinnon, called Consent of the Networked, and she didn't use the feudal metaphor. What she pointed out is that you know, back in the feudal era, powerful – and these were particularly governments. These were lords – had a lot of rights over their vassals and serfs, but basically no actual responsibilities. They could – you know, renege on their agreements all the time. And I, and I guess right, if you watch Game of Thrones, you see how it works, right? You know, when anything bad happens, the serfs get completely pummeled, right? They have no, no rights and they, they just, they're just collateral damage in, in these large battles that are happening. And it took, it took the, the Magna Carta where the, the serfs, the people got to say, hey, you governments, you don't just get rights. You have responsibilities as well. And right now, with these large companies, these Apples, these Googles, these Facebooks, it's very much the same thing. They have rights, 
but no responsibilities. I mean, they can do what they want. And your only recourse, and it's, it's, it's made liberally hard to do, is leave. Walk and if away. you wanted to leave Facebook, you, could, you can't take your data with. Right? You, can, you can say here, here's all the stuff I've given you to date, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away. Although depending on what social group you're in, that's actually very, very hard. You don't get invited to parties anymore. You lose all your friends. I mean, I mean these, the, the network effect and the lock-in is so great that it, it often the being able to leave is more illusionary than real. Right, the the social penalty is enormous, and of course, these companies count on that. That that's part of the deal. I mean, that's why you try to be so big, so it's so valuable for someone yeah. to be there. So, you know, I mean, so, the, and the idea is, do we need something Magna Carta like to force these corporations to have responsibilities? So you see some of this in Europe that. That there is a right to inspect the data that they have about you, a right to be notified if, you're, if it's being sold to a third party, the right to delete it, the right to take it with you when you leave. I, mean, I, I can make up some of this stuff that sounds plausible. And, and you know, do we need to establish these rights against these new nexuses of power that have emerged and are highly coercive and in some cases, highly abusive. In all cases, highly potentially abusive. Yeah. Again, I don't know how whether I want to agree with the coercive part. Yeah, so, I don't know. I want. To, well, yeah. I, I guess I, I get you wouldn't want to agree. With I heard that, you but hesitate that, but, there. But the the um, it, it's certainly true that there are large costs to leaving these these uh, fiefdoms that we've embedded ourselves in. Uh, we've chosen to embed ourselves. I think the the biggest difference between the the problem with the metaphor is that. There weren't that many vassals who wore a T-shirt advertising the how great their um, feudal lord was. Uh, so the fact that people wear T-shirts and and love being part of these these groups suggests that, as you say, it's it's convenient. Uh, right now, it's not it doesn't seem to be abusive. It, it may be right now, and it certainly has the potential to be. I agree with you there. And then we have this worry that uh, I have this worry that if we go through the government uh, that issue you raised earlier is going to come to the head to the fore which is the the ability of the players to manipulate that system i'd prefer an end around there's a couple of let me let me just suggest a couple of ways we might get to a different world one is that you could start a company that was had different set of uh, of default and opt-in options we had no, be uh, careful i mean that i mean lock-in's a big deal oh it is you know, oh i agree you, you can you can start a competing facebook but if nobody's on it It'll be easier remember, to start remember, one. We're, we're, be back, we're back to most people don't care most of the time. Right. You're going to be on I – mean, I'm not on Facebook because I'm a freak. But this is increasingly hard. I remember many years ago, I used to have regular parties. And I would send postcards to, to friends. And there was a, a time when I swapped from postcards to email. It was pretty much everyone had email. And there were a few people who didn't have email addresses back then, and I would have to remember to send them a postcard. And I'd invariably forget. And so those that weren't on that technology effectively stopped being invited to my stuff. Yeah. Not on purpose I understand. because that's the way the world worked. These days, I mean, I'm noticing that I'm not being invited to things because I'm not on Facebook. There is a social penalty for not being on Facebook. And it is – so I mean, in search, DuckDuckGo is a competing search engine 
then their business model is we do not collect your data. They are very niche because we're back to most people don't know the problem. Most people don't care. And because they are so niche, right, they're getting less revenue. Their search engine is less good. The, the, the powerful accrete power, and it's hard for an upstart to break in. Right? It's, not a, it's, it's not an easy competitive market like you know, building chairs in, a, in an open-air marketplace. Right. But don't you think it will be easier for DuckDuckGo to gather customers if Google becomes more abusive? Maybe. Depends. I mean, right? It depends whether it's publicized. Dep- you know, if, if Google is in charge of getting people to read articles about how abusive Google is, then maybe not. You know, I mean there's, there's a lot of, of, of stuff going on here. That's true. You know, I mean, how if we ratchet it up slowly, people aren't going to notice. There's a lot of ways to play this game, and the powerful, and and there's sort of another thread that that we could pull in that we as a species, I guess, as as science, are getting so good at psychological manipulation. We're putting people into brain scanners and showing them political and advertising messages, and and measuring how good the results are. We're getting so good at manipulation that persuasion, whether it's political persuasion or uh, economic persuasion, you know, buy my product, has gotten to the point where it's almost an unfair trade practice. So I'm not sure we can have this – we have a clean market here and the better product rises or the better candidate rises to the top. That it's a no, it's very – it, it's, definitely it, it's a scarily imperfect market at this point. Now, Doc Searles, in a recent podcast we did on his book, The Intention Economy. Great, great book. I, I enjoyed you know, reading Fascinating book. So he's, he wants to create a world where buyers signal their intentions. Sellers would compete for those intentions. He wants a world where we control our data. That's the default rather than the opt-in. How do we get – if you're – given how worried you are, concerned you are about these issues – Given how relatively unconcerned the average person is, I'm somewhere between you and the average person. Um, how do we get there from here? What other than the regulatory strategy, which is not what Doc Searles is pursuing? I don't think he's pursuing no, he's a pursuing, different he's pursuing business the market model. Strategy. Different but, business but, but, but model. He, what he's saying is, look, I can build technology that will empower individuals by putting them in ad hoc groups. It, it reminded me very much about the buyers clubs. We saw those in Japan. Uh, they turned into you know, co- what, what Costco and companies started like, that buyers would aggregate and, and give themselves more power. And I think this is great. I mean, I think his idea that you can do this with technology is, 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 is very clever. And if he can, it would be great. You know, I, I would worry about a backlash. I mean, think about it. Priceline had this idea when they started, right? We're going to let buyers name their own price, you know, and that turned into yeah, we're going to sell <laughs> tickets on sale and pretend yeah, yeah. buyers name their. But but you know, maybe the technology wasn't there yet because what Searles was talking about is is a more nuanced, cleverer technology to aggregate demand and to allow buyers to establish their contract requirements so it's not just a one-sided here's your click-through agreement you either can click or not right that there could be actually some negotiation and this would happen by agents automatically so it would scale you know there's a lot of great stuff here so so this certainly could work and i i i mean 
I like hearing him speak. I'm cautiously optimistic about what he's doing. Here's a way, right, that technology will enable those with less power to get more power. I think you're going to have the powerful fighting back. Yeah. Right there. You know, you, I mean, um, let's, let's take an easy answer to the airlines, right? I mean, the, the top four airlines say, well, look, we're not going to use that system. Suddenly, you can either fly on minor airline that's inconvenient, doesn't get you there, or you can't use it. I mean, so if you have a small number of dominant players, they could fight back. They could, they could uh, somehow regulate this tool out of existence. You know, and you know, I don't know what how they do it. I mean, we see this in with, with small agriculture. That big agriculture gets laws passed that really hurt small farmers because they don't want the competition. A big so businesses, it's it's not just agriculture. Large firms, yeah. I mean, that, that's an example. Large I'm firms of. love regulations that raise the costs to all firms right. because so, it, so, the smaller ones have trouble competing. Right. So I would worry about about fighting back using both corporate and government tools. Uh, I mean, I, it is a good. I mean, here's a great example of hey, the internet can change a power balance. I mean, but what we but remains to be seen. I mean, all is talking about how different groups are using power is where the balance ends up. I mean, early on, you talked about about radio, right? That radio and actually radio started at as completely decentralized, completely for the powerless, co-opted by. By governments because of limited spectrum, I mean, they had a whole bunch of, of reasons why they had to control the airwaves. In, in certain countries, they controlled it even more and became a propaganda tool. But it also was a tool of empowerment, of, of bringing you know radio free Europe, uh, br- you know, bringing messages to people who didn't have them. So when you look back at the history of radio, you probably could trace how radio affected power balance and, and where it ended up. Now, we're at the early days of that same graph of the internet and where it's going to end up. I, mean, I kind of want to say it's anybody's guess. Maybe I'm uh, you know, giving short shift to how much we can predict, but it seems really hard to me. I mean, so I'm sort of the early days of thinking about this. But you know, all of these things, it's going to be back and forth. It's going to be the powerful using their power. To uh, you know, to keep the status quo as much as possible, the powerless being nimble to try to do end runs and run arounds, and you know, it's gonna, it's really interesting to watch. Well, I want, I agree, and I, it's to me the other issue that's fascinating on how the balance is going to work out is is how much people care about it, and I think that is even more important when we look at at uh, terrorism and security issues there, and I'd like to. I'd like to use our last few minutes to talk about that because you said so many interesting and provocative things there. You've been very critical of how we have uh, used our resources to fight terrorism. What are the major mistakes do you think we've made there? And again, I think as you pointed out earlier, I think a lot of these mistakes are driven by the underlying fear and uh, preferences of, of the average American who's not not particularly worried about the, the abuse of power right now. I think that could change. It's starting to change. I think there's a bigger awareness of it. But the combination of fear and, and a lack of uh, – certainly a, a trust of what the government does is engendered a lot of practices that seem to me, and you've you've pointed this out, that, that are not very effective. So I'll make – I'll talk about two major mistakes. I mean this was a, I can spend an hour on this topic. Uh, the first one is we're, we over-exaggerate the threat. And, and in a lot of ways, this is a – an effect of the psychology of terrorism, that it's big, it's spectacular, the media repeats it endlessly. 
And in our brains, we think it's a much larger problem than it is. Uh, you know, we don't we don't say things like, well, every month uh, a 9/11's worth of people die in car crashes in the United States. That we don't say that you know pigs give kill more people than terrorists every year. We believe terrorism is this huge problem and needs an inordinate amount of security and spending to mitigate. So I think that's the the, the first thing we get badly wrong. The second is that we worry about the specifics of what happened rather than the generalities of what could happen. So we worry about terrorists taking over airplanes with box cutters. I mean, right now, we're worried about finish lines of marathons. It's almost magical thinking that we somehow have to secure the finish lines at marathons in this country because that's what the terrorists did last time, and obviously, that's the place of worry. Uh, we see this in airplane security, right? And think, think of the history. We take away guns and bombs, they use box cutters. We take away box cutters, they put a bomb in their shoes. We screen shoes, they use liquids. We take away liquids, uh, they put a bomb in their underwear. We implement full-body scanners, they're going to do something else, right? Again, this overly specific uh, focus on the details of the plot rather than the broad generalities. I will say so, – I will say those are, I think, are the two major mistakes. I did fly yesterday, and uh, I got to keep my belt on. It was a big day. <laughs> yeah, a big in, day, in, in, indeed. <laughs> sort of the strangest, uh, you know. It's it's this strange form of theater that if I take off my belt and my shoes for thirty seconds and let them pass through a metal detector, I'm somehow going to be safer. So it's, you know, it's you're right. It should be just an. They should just have an incantation. Um. You made a uh, you made a fabulous point in the aftermath of the uh, the Boston bombing that uh, resonates with a lot of themes of this program, which is uh, after every event like this, and it's it's true of natural disasters as well, but it's particularly true of terrorism. There's always signs that were missed, and uh, people then that recrimin there's recriminations like why did we the phrase you use which I love which is why didn't people complain? Why didn't we connect the dots? And what's your answer? Well, that it's, it's a crappy metaphor. I mean, the, the connect the dots metaphor, I mean, you know what a connect the dots picture looks like. There are a bunch of dots. They're all numbered. You connect them, and you got a picture of a duck. But that's not the way intelligence works, right? Intelligence is you have a million pieces of information. They're unnumbered. You don't know if any of them mean anything, and you're supposed to pick a terrorist plot out of it. It's it's a very different analysis, and you know, getting back to psychology, there's something called hindsight bias that we as people are we overestimate how obvious something was after the fact is the best way of putting it. Right after uh, the home team wins the football game, we all say, "Well, it was obvious that they would have won," and we list all the reasons. And if the home team lost the football game, we would have the opposite conversation. It's obvious they would have lost, and here's all the reasons. Well, it turns out it's only obvious in hindsight. You know, once you know the story, it's easy to pick out the pieces that make a good story. But before the fact, it is extremely difficult, and, and this is important. Things that are perfectly reasonable to do in, at the time might seem irresponsible in hindsight, and, and that – and there's no way to avoid bias. that. <laughs> and there's no way to avoid that, right? Connecting the dots 
It's not connecting the dots. It's finding a needle in a haystack. That's the correct metaphor. So given that problem, uh, which is I think you pointed out uh, the number of people on the watch list, some watch list was 700,000. Uh, the, the amount of resources it would take. Right. We can't actually watch them all. <laughs> right. We can't. Well, we could, but then we would be very, very poor uh, as a society and as individuals. Uh, what's, the, what's the right way to think about how to respond to that reality? Because I think the natural impulse I think a lot of people have, which is, I think, wrong, but the natural impulse is, well, we just have to fix it. We just have to, we need to reduce the risk. We need to, like you say, we just, now we just need to add marathon finish lines. That's all. And, and have, Body scanners will just cordon off Boston next time at the Boston Marathon. And to get into the city, you'll just have to have, go through the the scanner. And, da, 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 da. and if you do that, besides the quality of life dropping off and the worries about surveillance and abuse of power, it's really, really, really expensive. So what, what do you recommend should be our response as citizens and voters to this problem that you point out correctly is slightly, if not greatly, over-exaggerated? And our ability to stop it is is also exaggerated. I think we have to accept the risk. I mean, we accept the risk of getting in a car. I mean, it, it, it's really hard to make to make it to find something where driving there isn't the most dangerous part of the activity. Maybe skydiving. Right? By far, drive the taxi ride to the airport is the most dangerous part of a of a plane ride. Right? The drive to the marathon is the most dangerous part of the day. And so we are able to accept risks. We tend to accept risks that are normal parts of our life. I mean, I mean terrorism is rare and spectacular. Plane crashes are rare and spectacular. So we over-exaggerate them. The proper response is to accept that life entails risk. And that's okay. That's not bad. That's not a failing. That's not something to fix. That is part of, of being in the world. Uh, for many years in our country, we have recognized that uh, the price of liberty is the possibility of crime, that we deliberately reduce police power because we have a better society because of it, even though the occasional criminal gets through. Now, those sorts of trade-offs, those sorts of acceptances become harder as we live in a world where risk systematically gets removed, where medical science, you know, where product safety, you know, where all of these things reduce risks, suddenly we look at our residual risks and we were aghast. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean we haven't affixed terrorism? We, we, we have warning signs on ladders for heaven's sakes, right? You know, we, we don't allow children to swim in pools unattended anymore. We know better. What do you mean we can't fix terrorism? Go fix it. That's a perfectly reasonable reaction in a society that has just gotten rid of risk after risk after risk. Here's another one. Just get rid of it, right? I mean, can, can I take a, a medication to get rid of this risk like I do with all the other ones? So the other right? side, We want technology to save us. The other side would argue, and I'm not sympathetic to this, but, I, but I, it is possibly true. The other side would say, well, look, it's true we've spent all this money. We've implemented all these last war efforts. We're always fighting the last war, the box cutter, the underwear, the liquids, et cetera. But look how well it's worked. And the only reason that your strategy of acceptance is okay is because it is only a few thousand people over the last ten year, last decade and a half. If it were every month, then it would be a serious problem. But the reason it's not every month is because we've stopped all these plots along the way. What's well, your answer well, I mean, to that? Well, there's a couple of things. One Car crashes are that every month, and it's not a serious problem. So it's not obvious 
that it would be a serious problem. It, 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 it's possible we as society would be more accepting like car crashes if it happened every month because it would be normal. It'd be weird, but that's possible. The other thing is because terrorism is so rare, it's really hard to produce the argument of, well, we haven't had any terrorist attacks, therefore you know, things are good. If, if it's like crime, which might happen you know, several times a night, we can notice if we produce a security countermeasure whether it increases or reduces the crime rate. If it's something like meteor strikes against the planet, they happen, what, once every 800 years, 1,000 years. It's really hard to judge whether your security works because there are enough instances. I remember – it was like a couple of years after 9-11, and then Attorney General Ashcroft was actually in my, my home city in Minneapolis giving a speech. One of the things he said was it's been two years since 9-11, and there haven't been any more terrorist attacks, and that's proof my policies are working. And I was listening to him, and I thought – well, there are yeah. no terrorist attacks in the two years before 9-11, and you didn't have any policies. What does that prove? Yeah. It proves that terrorist attacks are really, really rare. So you can't judge rare events on probability of incidents because there isn't enough data to plot any meaningful trends. Again, this is a subtle argument to make to a layman, and – I mean, what Ashcroft said, prob everybody in the audience probably nodded. Man, yeah, he's sure. right. Wow. Yeah, sounds good. Two years we have, we, don't, we expected a terrorist attack every week, and there wasn't. I mean, what, what great things he's done. Right, but but the FBI, it's not necessarily true. The FBI and the Bush administration and the Obama administration would all tell you about all the plots and, and conspiracies that they've stopped, and therefore the price of security is eternal vigilance. We need to spend all this money for surveillance, et cetera. Do you think we've stopped any of these? Are they real? You know, most of them aren't real. There are a couple that were real. Remember that uh, that car full of explosives in the New York Times that was that was stopped by a hot dog vendor who said, you know, that car shouldn't be smoking that way. I better call the police. I mean, the bomb wouldn't have exploded. I think it was a, a, a faulty bomb, but that was a real attack. Most of the the plots, and if you remember, the guy's going to blow up the Brooklyn Bridge and or topple the Sears Tower or make the the fuel pipelines at JFK Airport explode. Most of those, and, and there's some really good websites that look at all of these plots, were not real. That, that the plotters had no idea what they were doing. They had no access to weaponry. They couldn't have pulled it off. It was mostly uh, either FBI informants or FBI undercover agents goading the plotters and then arresting them. And I worry, because this stuff plays really good on television, that we are actually creating terrorists to make – to make it look like there's more of a risk than there actually is. Uh, John Mueller uh, is the person who's done the research, and if you, you can, I've blogged it. He's you a, can look, look, he look it future, up. He's a future guest on Econ Talk. Yeah, so yeah. ask him about it. He's done some great yeah. work in this. Yeah, we, we, we will talk about that. But but your view then is that that we should just um, just live with it. It's it's kind of in the noise. It's not like you know. Product safety. It's not like the climate change or income inequality. Would you get or rid car of car crashes or, 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 or like the serious stuff? I'm worried about. Would you get rid of um, all airport security? Would you get rid of all wiretapping, surveillance, infiltration, all the stuff? Also, big word. I certainly get rid of most. I mean, right now, I think we're just doing it largely wrong. That the things you want to spend money on are investigation, intelligence, and emergency response. Right, that those that focusing on tactics and targets 
is overly specific and is is money that only makes sense if you guess the plot correctly. Right? I mean, if you spend billions of dollars on the TSA and the terrorist bomber marathon, you've wasted the money because you've guessed wrong. Yeah, well, that's a big right? issue. So, so stuff that doesn't require you to guess. I mean, think of the way uh, the liquid bombers were apprehended. Right? They were arrested in their London apartments. Uh, they chose a plot deliberately to get around airport security. Right? And they were arrested before they got to the airport through investigation intelligence, traditional following the leads. I mean, and that's the sort of thing that works. Emergency response works great in, in all sorts of disasters. I think it's real important, both natural and man-made. But a lot of the overly specific measures, I think, are a mistake. Airplanes are an exception. I mean, the characteristics of an airplane require some extra security. I mean, the miracle of Boston is that the inverse square law is your friend, right? That, that, that the, the, the force of the explosion decays on the square of the distance. I mean, so few people died. Right. You put that same right. bomb on an airplane – and the characteristics of the plane means the plane would crash. Right? It's not the bomb that kills people. It's the fact that the plane falls out of the sky that kills people. So you always need some extra security because of the way a plane works. Now, what fascinates but, me – what fascinates me, and this is the point you make very well uh, in a couple of your recent essays, is it's interesting how difficult it is to rationally process how few people were killed in Boston. And yeah, we, yeah, we, of course, agreed. say this with total uh, – you know, every death is a horrible tragedy to dozens and hundreds of people whose lives were touched. And by the way, it drives me nuts when people say well, you know, after Boston, well, we'll never be the same. You know, the Boston Marathon next year will never be the same. And that's not true. Most of us will be the same. The people whose lives will never be the same, the family – And unfortunately, the Boston Marathon might not be the same for a long time. It might not because, be. Well, it because, depends. Because the elites will panic. It depends. But my point is, is that – for the people who lost their lives, whose families were touched, those their lives will never be the same. We're we're over dramatizing, and it's absurd. It's a it's bizarre. But the fact is, is that there is this tremendous emotional response that's distinct from a bad car crash. And part right. of it is because you choose to get in the car. Part of it's because the car serves another purpose. The idea that that you're vulnerable suddenly in a way that you weren't vulnerable before is very difficult. I think for all of us. For all of us to accept, and as a result, we we ask for things and are willing to spend things and do things that are really uh, not productive. Um, and it's just uh, it's just very very hard for us to just say, well, it's a small, as you say, it's a small probability. Um, we'll just live with it. And instead, we say, what can we do? To, what can we do to stop it? Right. How can we make this better? I'm scared. Make me not scared. Yeah. My guest today has been Bruce Schneier. Bruce, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.